from the book of Colossians, chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. Hear the word of our Lord. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning again. We are we are going to pray again. <laughs> Let me pray right now. Father, this is your word. It is living and active. It does not return void. It is filled with your spirit. It is timeless. It is purer than silver refined seven times. It deserves our greatest attention. We call, Father, for your grace to give us ears to hear, to sustain us in the work of listening and applying and hearing your word to us personally. Father, I pray that you would help me to preach, that I would, as Paul preaches, make it clear, which is how I ought to, that we would understand the mystery of Christ, the good news that offers us salvation for eternity and the great privilege of being part of spreading that message around the world. I pray this, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. So we are uh, fast approaching the end of this book on Colossians, which we have called Jesus is Enough. And uh, I think we've probably gotten the general gist of it, but the last few weeks we have been marching through chapter 3 where we have focused on the living out of the gospel as we have our uh, responsibility uh, to uh, uh, not only believe the gospel but make our life about the gospel. Paul has been showing us what living it out means. He's shown us that it's about taking on a resurrection mindset, about fighting the sin in our lives. It's about uh, putting on Christ, becoming more Christ-like, growing in thanksgiving and in participation of our local church. Last week we saw it was all about showing the goodness of Christ in his lordship over our everyday relationships, in our marriage, in our family, and in our workplace. This week, Paul uh, takes the last view of what living out the gospel means, what he wants to communicate to the Colossians and to us. And he is going to teach us today that we live out the gospel by sharing it with others. In a sense, this is full circle. 
The, the book of Colossians started with Paul's prayer and thanksgiving that the gospel had been shared and become fruitful amongst the Colossians, that they had become part of the people of God. And then he has spent the, the, the chapters 2 and chapter 3 uh, exhorting them to, to grow in their knowledge of the gospel, to reject false teaching that would distract them from the purity of the gospel, and then to, to grow up in maturity to Christ. But now at the conclusion, he comes back to the beginning and says, now that this is you, now that you are living in and living out the good news, you participate in the great mission of sharing that good news with the world. You were called to pray and share the gospel, the good news. And you know what? That's not hard. Because we, as, as human beings, naturally love sharing good news. We love sharing good news. How many of you will share that the saints won tomorrow night, right? How many of you share that LSU won yesterday? Good news we share, right? I remember when my children were born. I was the most obnoxious person in the room because you had to look at pictures of my new little baby. You had to hear about how how big he he is and and how wonderful he is and how, how he gurgles this way and coos and does all of this different stuff. You could not know if you were in any sphere of influence in my life. Nathan has good news. He's a dad of three beautiful children. The point is that we share good news. That is the natural response to having good news. And the gospel is the best news. It is the goodest of good news. And that is what we have, and that is what Paul wants us to recognize. Know that you have the good news, and now share it. What is, what is the good news that we have? I'd like to go back to a, a story in the Gospel of Mark to remind us exactly what we're talking about when we say we have good news. In chapter 5, we uh, have Jesus getting on a boat and going into enemy territory, Gentile land, land of pig farmers, which if you were in the first century and a Jew, that was, that was about the worst thing you could do. And they are met in the tombs by a man who is overwhelmed and possessed by an army of demons who races out to meet Jesus at the moment he puts his foot on the beach. And this army of darkness that dwells in this man seeks to parlay with the Lord of creation. And Christ says to that demoniac and to all of the demons inside of him, Be gone! And the demons evacuate that man immediately. And this man who had been tormented and tortured, living in the tombs as an outcast, is suddenly in his right mind, set free, liberated from the oppression that he had experienced under this power of darkness. And what do we see happen at the end of the story? Look at, at uh, five, Mark chapter 5, verse 18, we read this. 
as Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. But he did not permit him and said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. How much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And the man went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Do you see what happened to the demoniac at the moment that he was saved, that he was delivered from this hostile presence, from the power of darkness, from being an outcast, to now being the recipient of mercy, to now being liberated and set free, to being able to live again with people? That Jesus says, go live out this thanksgiving and share this good news with all the people that you know. My friends, we are that man. If you have been saved by the good news, you have been delivered from the darkness. You have been delivered from the domain of the evil one. You have been transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. You have been rescued from a hostile mind. You have been reconciled to God. You have been made into a child of God that cries, Abba, Father. The news that the demoniac has is magnified by you. You have eternal life. You have eternal fellowship. You have the grace of God, the Holy Spirit living within you. And so, what do we do? What do we do when we have that news? We live out the good news by sharing it with others. John Piper wrote in the book, Don't Waste Your Life, an important thought. Piper says, if we claim to enjoy his excellence and do not display it for others to see and admire, we deceive ourselves. Because the mark of God-enthralled joy is to overflow and expand by extending itself into the hearts of others. The wasted life is the life without a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples. You see, Paul is telling us that now is your turn to let the good news break out and to multiply and to share it with others. And so this passage, this last paragraph that Paul gives for instruction, he is going to give us three ingredients to effective witnessing. What do we need to do to be effective witnesses? How do we share the gospel effectively? Paul leaves us with three ingredients. We're going to see that effective witness requires prayer. Effective witness requires preparation. An effective witness requires proclamation. Let us go through each of these as we go through the passage itself. So if you're with uh, the, the text, we're in Colossians chapter 4. 
let us look at verses 2 through 4, which are going to show us that effective witness requires prayer. Verse 2, Paul says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Pray steadfastly, being watchful in it. It's so simple. Pray. But if, if you want me to be transparent and authentic this morning, I will tell you, this one's the hardest for me. Prayer is an unnatural language. It is hard to, to commit to prayer. I, I confess there are days that I always look back on and say, wow, what, how, did I pray? Prayer is a, is a struggle. And, I, and I'll tell you why it is a struggle, at least for me. It's hard to value prayer in a results culture. Everything in, in America is production-minded. Everything about what we do, we have to see the return on investment. And so we want to make sure that every minute of our life multiplies itself one way or another. We don't want our time wasted. And it is sickening, but it is true in our inward heart that we struggle I struggle to see prayer as the best use of my time. I struggle with that. I confess that. But we can't be effective. We can't have results. We can't do anything apart from the power of God. And so do you see what happens when we dismiss prayer as something that gets in the way of our productivity. When we think about prayer that way, we have revealed something quite troubling. We think it's all about us. We think it is our power that makes the difference. We think it is our ability to control the situation. We think the results are ours. Pride shows up, and it is pride that so often limits our praying. And that is why it is so important and why Paul emphasizes that prayer is the beginning. Effective witness requires prayer. Why? Because it is God-centering. What you do and how you do it must be centered and grounded in God. And only when we start in prayer will our witnessing be dependent upon God and powered by His grace. Those are the things that are going to make our witnessing effective. We must be committed to prayer as effective witnesses because prayer reminds us that the gospel's power begins and ends with God. Witnessing 
is not something that we come to as, as something that we boast in or that we uh, brag in our accomplishments. Rather, we are shown by, by being invited into prayer that witnessing is a privilege that God has shared with us. God shares with us the, the opportunity of, 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 of telling about his, his boy to the rest of the world. And that is a privilege that we cannot separate from being firmly and rooted in him through prayer. Now, when we talk about praying steadfastly, I, I, can, I can sense, oh my goodness, that, that's all the time. How do we possibly pray all the time? And it is worth understanding that prayer is not simply an activity you do on your knees. It's not simply an activity that you carve out in your devotional time. It's not something that is before prayer, uh, before your meal. Prayer is simply this, a conversation with God. And here is the great gift. God dwells with you by the Holy Spirit. And so if you live with an active inner monologue, you can begin praying steadfastly by simply talking with God in your inner monologue. I have found that, that, that it is much easier to pray. And in fact, you can be praying constantly. In conversations, I constantly come to God and say, give me wisdom, give me discernment, give me grace. And in that mentality and recognizing that it is just a conversation with God, you can be with God every moment of the day. Let him into your thoughts. Direct your inner monologue to converse with him. And you will find yourself steadfast and watchful in prayer. What does Paul want us to pray for? He wants us to pray for three particular things in in this passage. He wants us to pray for fellow missionaries. He says, pray for us. He also wants us to pray for God to provide, that that God may open a door for the word. And he also wants uh, us to pray for him or for other missionaries, that they would be faithful and effective witnesses. He asks the Colossians to pray that I would make it clear what I am to preach. I want to talk about each of those for just a second. When he says that we are to be fellow missionaries praying for others, he is letting us know a a, a great power of prayer. You are a partner in the mission field anywhere in the world where the gospel is advancing and you are praying. You are a partner in the advance of the gospel. Your work is not meaningless. Your work is contributory to making the gospel effective. Paul says in Colossians 4.12, just a few verses later, he speaks of, of the, the friend to this church, Epaphras. He says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Paul is telling us that our prayers are meaningful important, momentous activities for missionaries and for missionary work. And that is why he is asking, pray for us. 
Not simply have us in your mind. Not, not just simply give us your thoughts, but pray for us. Wrestle and struggle for us because we are dealing with spiritual powers of oppression and resistance. Pray for us. And prayer is something that we can all do. We prayed earlier for the Unterstalls and the Bransfords, two, two uh, missionaries that we are close to as a church. We need to be praying for the Smiths as they get prepared to launch. Paul mentions for the first time in Colossians that he is in prison. He is in prison on account of the gospel. Listen. If someone is advancing the gospel, they will face attack. They are invading enemy territory. They are like Jesus on the shore where the demoniac begins the fight. That is what happens every time the gospel advances because it is stealing from the evil one. And so if someone is advancing the gospel, they will be facing attack. And they need prayer. They need prayer more than anything. They need you storming the seat of the Father's mercy. Protect, defend, turn back, give victory, overcome temptation, deliver from evil. And doing that will, will, will support and care for those advancing the gospel in ways that, that they will only know when they get to glory but they will make a mighty difference. We're also to pray, as Paul says, for God to provide that God may open a door for the word. You know, there's something very fascinating about the fact that we are to pray that God may open a door for the word. Why? Why do we have to pray for God to open a door for the word. God can just open the door. Prayer isn't giving him ability. Prayer isn't even, even uh, uh, changing what he is planning to do. Why is, is, is it called upon us to pray that God may open a door for the word? Here we find that great uh, combination, that great mystery that the scriptures hold together of, of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. We see here evangelism and prayer, two things that we are called upon to do, to labor and work for the advance of the gospel, mixed in with God's sovereignty. He is the one that opens the door. We are to petition God to open the door. Why? Why, do we, why, why has God involved our evangelism and our praying? into his work of advancing the kingdom. One of those answers is because it delights God to share in what delights him, to make you a participant with it. But more importantly, as we think about this theologically, we must recognize that our prayer and our evangelism are part of God's sovereign means to accomplish his sovereign ends. 
which is to say that God has ordained that the way that his kingdom is going to advance and the way that he is going to operate in advancing the kingdom is going to involve the prayers and the evangelism of his people. Look at at, uh, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 9, verses 36 to 38. Jesus, uh, we read about, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest, to send out laborers into his harvest. There's already fruit to be gleaned. It's it's there. It's ready to be plucked. But Christ asks us to pray for laborers to go into the harvest of the Lord, the harvest the Lord already owns. Why Why has God made it this way? Because God wants us to participate but also because God has made it so that he receives glory in the workers who go and glory in the fruits that are received. God has involved us so that his glory might be magnified. When I was uh, working in an outreach ministry, um, we uh, ended up taking a a, a vacation Bible school set to a apartment complex in the middle of July. And it was the hottest day of the year, as it always seems to be. It was, it was 100 degrees or better. And we had set all of this up. And I mean, the whole place was quiet. There wasn't anything happening. We, we could have been setting up in a ghost town. And we have, we're out there, it is hot, and we're wondering what is it all going to be for. And then we sat down together in a circle and we prayed. We asked God to bring us children that we could share this gospel with, that they, that they uh, uh, need to hear, that you would bring us people to, 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 to hear that we could be laborers in your harvest. And as we were praying and finished praying, we turned around and out of nowhere Several, a couple dozen kids just came out of these places and they circled around us. And we had a vacation Bible school that reached kids that were not going to church, that that shared the good news with 20 or more kids. That is the, the power of prayer. God loves to answer that prayer. He loves uh, us to be dependent upon him, and he loves to give those results in both the praying and in the results. He comes with the glory. Second, we need to see. Effective witness requires preparation. Verse 5 says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders. You see, effective witness in in, in verse 5 tells us, uh, or verse 5 shows us what effective witness is by reminding us of something. Witnessing, a witnessing life is not accidental. It's a mindset. It's a way of life. A witnessing life is a life prepared 
It is prepared by prayer, but also, as verse 5 says, it is prepared by walking in wisdom toward outsiders. Paul wants us to see two particular ways in verse 5 that we are to be prepared. We are to uh, walk in wisdom. What, What does walking in wisdom mean? It means that basically we are to live consistent with the gospel. We are to uh, be in this world in a way that does not scandalize the name of Christ, but that makes the, the gospel something that truly uh, uh, rides and, and overrides our life and is the, the control of our life. What, they, what, we are, what, what Paul is reminding us in walking in wisdom is that we are walking amongst outsiders, amongst those who are not in the kingdom. He says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders. What is that to tell us? That we live out the gospel in a watching world. We live out a gospel in a world of people who are watching you and and seeing whether your life truly has anything in it that is different than, than their life. If there is anything about you that that appears to point to God, and as they watch you, as you walk in wisdom amongst them, you are, are living amongst them in such a way that they should be interested in what makes you tick and what is the hope that lies within you. But more than just walking in wisdom, Paul also says that we must in verse 5, uh, finishing verse 5, we must make the best use of the time. Paul reminds us as, as, as prepared people that we live in this world with a sense of urgency. He says the time, this reference to the time, is an indication that time is not a luxury. Time is running out. And if we do not take the opportunity to be witnesses We are wasting precious time. In witnessing, time is short. We don't know how much time that we have in this particular relationship, with this particular friend, with this particular family member, with that coworker. We don't know how much time that we have in ourselves. And we recognize that in every single one of these relationships, the consequences are huge. Outsiders don't have hope in the life to come. And so to waste that time, not to have a sense of urgency, not to seize the opportunities to share the gospel, is tragic. So what? Paul wants us to not waste our opportunities. He says, use the best use of our time, or as another translation says, that we should be busy redeeming the time. Or as the New American Standard says, that we must be seizing every opportunity. We must be seizing every opportunity to, to share the good news. One of my favorite passages in, that illustrates this is in the, in, in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, Paul is in prison. He has uh, uh, been there for years. He has gone nowhere. He is languishing. And he has appealed to go to Rome to appeal his case. And he is going to be standing before the governor, Festus, and the king, Agrippa, and a a council of very important people. Paul has been called to make a defense. And he uses his defense for his own life. 
as an opportunity to preach the gospel, to make the the news of who Jesus is and what he has done and why you need to know him personally the focus of his own defense. We might say the opportunity here is for your defense, not, not for the gospel, but Paul does not separate the two. He cries out that this is an opportunity for the gospel. And it it just absolutely blows the mind of King Agrippa. And we read this in verses uh, Acts 26, 28, and 29. And Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. You see Paul's philosophy when he says, take every opportunity. He is living it out right there. He is saying, whether short or long, whether I have five minutes, whether I have one hour, whether I have a plane ticket next to this person, or whether I have a long time, whether I'm sitting in prison and I have this cellmate that I can talk to for hours and hours and hours, whether short or long, I am going to be investing and taking those opportunities to make the gospel known. That is what he wants to instill in us, whether short or long, Take the opportunity. What does this mean? It means that there are many ways to be sharing the gospel and that we should be sharing the gospel often. I have learned and met people who have been saved by street preachers. I have met people who have been saved at camps. I have met people who have been saved by an evangelist that came door to door. I have met people who have been saved by chance encounters On airplanes, I have encountered people who have been saved by a long, slow, lifelong uh, witnessing opportunity. I have seen every opportunity be used by our Father to bring people into his kingdom. Let us be using every opportunity, even a haircut. About five, six years ago, I was getting my haircut and uh, I don't know why the conversation went this way, but it moved towards spiritual things. And, and this woman is, you know, cutting my hair, and, and there's a little bit of peril here. I mean, how, how uh, much do you want to say with somebody that's got scissors around your ears and, and up around your hair? And, you know, you're going to have to live with this haircut uh, potentially for, for weeks. But, the, but the, the opportunity for the gospel was there, and I clumsily shared John 3.16 and talked about how the gospel is a personal relationship. And she wanted to give her life to the Lord. It happened in a haircut. I had no plans to evangelize in that haircut. But a haircut was one of those opportunities. God uses evangelism, all kinds of evangelism. He uses evangelism that we might not use. But he uses it to his glory. So what's, what's the point of this? Just do it. Just do it. We spend so much time saying the, the opportunity isn't quite right or the time isn't that good. Do it. And how do we do it? 
by living expectantly. One of the elders of my previous church at his funeral, it was shared at his morning prayer. He just hit the knees when he woke up every morning and he said in his prayer, give me someone that I can help today in your name. And the funeral was filled with people that he reached because God answered that prayer again and again. Be prepared and opportunities will come. So we've seen that effective witness requires prayer. Effective witness requires preparation. Third, effective witness requires proclamation. Verse 6 says, Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. There is a myth about evangelism that hangs upon a false quote from a man called Francis of Assisi. You've probably heard this quote that says, Preach the gospel at all times, and when necessary, use words. Have you heard that before? Raise your hands if you've known that. It seems to be a meme. It's like been a meme for 600 years. <laughs> yeah, a meme. Uh, preach the gospel at all times and when necessary, use words. But like most memes, it is, it is tragically false. Um, it's false in the basic sense that uh, records show that he never said this. This is not words that he uh, said. But second, it is manifestly untrue. The gospel can't be mimed. It can't be done with hand gestures. It can't be done with body language. If you want to communicate the gospel, Paul is clear it must be declared It is a verbal gospel. It has to be proclaimed. We are to to live a life with with good deeds that adorn the gospel. That's what was talked about in point two, walking in wisdom. But walking in wisdom in and of itself does not present any saving knowledge. It only gives a context for that conversation. Our deeds can adorn the gospel, but we must understand that it is only the verbal gospel being given that can save. Acts chapter 16, we we encounter Paul having been thrown in the prison of Philippi, and we find this, this, this combination of words and deeds brought together. Paul is thrown in prison, and he could be there whining and bellyaching about, woe is me and self pity, but instead he and Silas are busy singing and praying and praising God up till midnight. And then a huge earthquake shakes the the, the place, breaks open the jail, and the jailer who is sitting outside the jail wakens and realizes, oh my goodness, I've, I've lost all my prisoners. I need to kill myself to save my honor. And before he does that, Paul yells out of the prison cell, stop, we are all still here. And the the jailer is absolutely dumbfounded. Why wouldn't they have escaped? Paul did not leave because Paul wanted an opportunity to share the gospel with the jailer. And rather than seeking his own freedom, he stayed. 
And the, the man was so amazed by, by the, the adorning of this man's life, the conviction of Paul's life, that he runs in and he says, what must I do to be saved? And Paul says, call on the name Jesus and you will be saved. His works, his life adorned the gospel, did it not? But those works in and of themselves did not save the man. The man was only saved when the verbal gospel, believe in the name of Jesus and you will be saved, was proclaimed and believed. So we cannot believe that we are announcing the gospel or doing evangelism if our mouths stay shut. We proclaim the gospel. They must hear to be saved. Listen to Paul's words in Romans chapter 10, verse 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? You see, we must proclaim the gospel. So what do we proclaim? What is the gospel we proclaim? I would encourage everyone to have 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 3 to 5 at easy hand in your Bibles. Because in these uh, verses is put very simply the basic gospel message. If you don't know the gospel, if you're unclear about the gospel, Then listen to these words. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. This is the gospel message, that Jesus Christ died on the cross, not for himself, but for your sins. He paid the penalty. He was buried, and he was raised again, leaving a tomb empty that testifies that he is risen. And he was seen by many witnesses who went and proclaimed through the world, Christ is risen Believe in his name. And we are told that all who trust in Christ, the Son of God, for the payment of your sins will have the resurrection life that he has. I appeal to you. Have you believed in this gospel? Have you confessed, yes, I am a sinner and Christ died for my sins. I believe that he is risen from the dead. He is my Lord and Savior. That is the message that we must proclaim. That is the message that you and I must share. So as we conclude, effective witness requires prayer, requires preparation, and it requires proclamation. I want to leave with this thought. There is no greater joy. There is no greater joy than sharing the gospel than participating with the advancement of the kingdom of God, with seeing someone move from the domain of darkness into the domain of life, 
to see a heart of stone broken apart and made into a heart of flesh. There is no greater joy. We are told that the angels of heaven rejoice over the sinner that repents. And you are at the front row when you witness and see someone that the Lord has called to himself take on the gospel. We are, have the, the life in front of us that was given to the healed demoniac. We get to go around. This is, this is our life. This is our mission. This is our joy. We get to go around and tell, like the demoniac, how much the Lord has done for us. We get to testify how wonderful are the works of the Lord, how beautiful is His mercy, how available is His grace to all who would simply believe. You know, the next time that Jesus goes to the region that He left the demoniac in the Gospel of Mark, you know what happens then? Crowds run to Him. They come to him, they greet him, they ask for his help. And I believe that there is a connection there. I believe that that demoniac going about telling everyone how much the Lord has done for him had prepared these people for meeting the Lord the next time he came. That is the effect of a witness that is prayerful, prepared, and full of proclamation. So I want to close with a simple question. Who is the person who does not know Jesus in your life that God has opened the door for you to reach? What opportunity can you say, yeah, I have this opportunity and I have the time to be a witness, to share the good news that has made me full of joy. Let's pray together for that opportunity. Father, we thank you that in the gospel we call you Father. We thank you for Jesus that we have been delivered from our sins, that we have been delivered from the domain of darkness, that we have gone from the realm of death to everlasting life that we have your spirit dwelling within us, that there is a song of joy in our heart at all times that we are your children. And Father, we want more to know this news. We want more ears opened. We want your sovereign hand to put us in places that are wide open for gospel witness. Father, we pray that you would give us a life of prayer and a life of preparation, that we would have a sense of urgency, that we would see the opportunities. And even if they are embarrassing or awkward or even if fear fills our hearts, Father, that you would stamp that out with your spirit, which gives boldness and courage. Father, that you would give that boldness and courage to us to seize opportunities, short or long, to share the good news of Jesus. Father, I pray that you would lay upon each of our minds that person or group of people that you want us 
to share the gospel with. Father, I pray that your spirit would just sit between our ears saying, share now, share now. Speak and trust that I will give you the words. Father, I pray that you would give us the eyes to see and the courage to seize the opportunity to make one more of, your, of, of the lost people in this world whom you have determined to be your own, that we would be the people that share that gospel. We pray this, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.